0: Please remain standing and turn to Philippians chapter 4. This will be the final of four sermons on joy in the month of February. The idea is in finishing with somewhat of a survey of Philippians. I think it would be good to read the last chapter, which may be one of the best chapters in all of Scripture, of practical helps and means to know joy in Christ. And we'll finish the sermon with this chapter. Let's begin the sermon by reading verses 1 to the end of the chapter in Philippians chapter 4. So please hear the word of God. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Iodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate, think on these things, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoice to the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those who are of Caesar's household The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This is the word of God. May God by his Spirit teach us and convict us according to his will. You may be seated. Three weeks ago, we began a series of sermons on joy with a sermon that might be entitled The Joy of Christ. And we saw that the joy of Christ is symbolized and exemplified in the wedding in Cana in John chapter 2. Weddings are joyous, but at this wedding, there were dry water pots representing the Old Covenant rituals, and they were filled to the brim with the best wine, which represents the joy of the new covenant. And in that first sermon, we mentioned joy was a mark of the church, a mark of the church that Jesus prayed for in John 17. And we mentioned briefly four basic ways to, to help to know joy. So two weeks ago, in the second sermon, we had a sermon called Joy is a Mark of the Church, and Christians as well. And we looked at John chapter 17 and we fleshed out those basic ways to know joy. And they were, first of all, you have to know the the Christ of joy if you're going to know the joy of Christ. And so you have to come to Christ in repentance and faith. And you get more than just joy when that occurs. But then there's having a mind settled on the goodness of God in Christ. Then there's fellowship with God through Christ and Christ's people. And fourthly, the pursuit of holiness through obedience to Christ in one's life. And we said then in the second sermon, you might add to that list of four, prayer, thanksgiving, and witnessing. Prayer is something that's commanded. It's something that garners your mind on Christ. And so it's good for you in joy. Thanksgiving is part of a heart that is joyful, thanking God in all things, and witnessing There's something joyous about witnessing because you're not just preaching the gospel to yourself. You're trying to tell the gospel to others and you're focusing on Christ and making him known and revisiting then maybe his salvation that's been wrought to you and trying then to encourage others to know the great joy that you know. Witnessing brings joy. But in that second sermon we mentioned Psalm 34 as an example of setting one's mind on God and his goodness, even in the midst of affliction, We also mentioned that Philippians was perhaps the greatest book of all scripture to speak about joy in affliction. So then last week, the third sermon, we talked about joy as part of experiencing God through Psalm 34. You see, there's, there's a chain reaction with these sermons. They fit together. So we talked about Psalm 34, so we preached it last week, and Psalm 34 is a great example of God's people in time of affliction who settle their mind on the goodness and the things of God, and they seek fellowship with God. They pursue holiness through obedience to God via prayer and thanksgiving, even being a witness, because David says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord to his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. He's inviting his readers and his listeners, come to this God and see there's a witness in that. See what I have found in Christ. I want you to know the same thing. So that leads us then to this final week. The fourth sermon, if you will, and we've mentioned Philippians, I think, in every sermon, so it just makes sense that today I'd like us to have an overview of Philippians in a sermon that could be entitled, Joy in Christ. The idea of being in Christ, our union with Christ, is a key theme of the book of Philippians, as is joy. And maybe better, we could entitle the sermon, Joy in and for Christ, because you see with the fellowship in Philippi, it wasn't just rejoicing in Christ, but rejoicing in their, in their serving him and making him known for the furtherance, through the furtherance of the gospel and the loving of the brethren. So with this idea of having an, a jet tour through Philippians, but focusing on joy, it's probably wise to have some kind of a background to the letter to the Philippians. The letter to the Philippians is a wonderful letter. It may be my favorite New Testament epistle, but that doesn't matter. Within this letter to the Philippians, we see that Paul has a special bond of fellowship and through affliction with the Philippians and the furtherance of the gospel with this church. And the church was born out of affliction. If you remember in Acts chapter 16 on Paul's second missionary journey, approximately A.D. 51, that Paul visits then in Philippi, And by the sovereign work of God, applying the gospel to sinners, this new church is born. First, you have Lydia, who we assume is a widow, a single lady who's a wealthy Jewish woman who has her heart open. The scripture plainly says her heart was opened and she believed. And her heart was open, but then she opened her home to great hospitality, to probably the first meeting place of the first Reformed Baptist Church of Philippi. And then we saw the demon-possessed slave girl, Who is set free from the demon and from her master and to Christ, we hope. It doesn't explicitly say that, but it just used to assume if this is being done, she's set free as well to Christ. But her freedom caused Paul and Silas to be captured and beaten and imprisoned. And so then the third conversion or the third thing you see in the birthing of the church in Philippi is the jailer who imprisoned and actually beat. Paul and Silas, and chained them to the walls, he comes to Christ by the witness of Paul and Silas under their persecution and the joy they expressed, singing hymns and praying. And maybe the miraculous earthquake had something to do with getting his attention as well. And he believed. And then he became a servant of Paul and Silas and actually washed the wounds, the wounds that he created in Paul and Silas with a change of heart. So that's the, the birth of this church in Philippi. But then there's a continued affliction. You can even see that if you were able to pay attention through the whole last chapter of Philippians, it's hard to to listen that long, but you can see they're giving support to Paul and helping him through all of the years since. And it's been 10 years from the birth of the church to when this letter is written. It doesn't seem like it, but it's been 10 years. And there's continued sacrificial support for the gospel and for the brethren and for other churches and for Paul. And they sent gifts and even people to assist Paul and other churches. And Paul visits Philippi twice on his third missionary journey, we find out in the book of Acts. And that brings us to the current situation. When this letter was written, the current affliction, and you can look at the very end of Acts chapter 28, the very end of Acts, you have Paul as a prisoner in Rome around AD 60 to 62, so it's 10 years later. And in spite of all the hardships Paul has gone through at this point, you may have forgotten he'd spent two years in prison in Caesarea. He went through a shipwreck to get to Rome. He'd spent two years in prison in Rome already. And yet he could still write a letter known for its themes of joy and contentment in Christ and in unity and and affection in and for Christ's people. That's really some of the key things of this letter to the Philippians. Joy and contentment in Christ and unity and affection in and for Christ's people and for the furtherance of the gospel. So the background here, Paul's writing from prison. He doesn't know whether he's going to be released or whether he's going to be put to death. He's likely chained to a guard around the clock. Certainly his ministry is in chains. He's unable to do what he wants to do most of anything else, which is to go out and preach the gospel. And yet he both knows joy in this affliction, and he calls his brethren in the church of Philippi, and therefore us as well, to know joy in and for Christ. And so today, again, I want us to have a survey through the letter to the Philippians to see this joy in and for Christ, even in an affliction. And there's a brief outline for not a brief text. In your bulletins, you'll see a brief outline. What I want us to do is the first and the last chapters are kind of like bookends to Philippians, I want us to emphasize with the first chapter and the last chapter, the practical, the basics of knowing joy in Christ. But then the middle two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, will focus on the centerpiece and the heart of this joy, which is Christ himself. So the outline would be looking at the keys to joy, which we've already seen in the last three sermons, but they're all here. The keys to joy in the first chapter. Then we'll see joy's centerpiece in Christ in chapter 2, Then the idea that joy is actually commanded in chapter 3. But then at the last chapter, which we just read, we'll see that joy is then cultivated through those same keys that we've been looking at all month. And let's see if we can do this in an hour and a half or so. That was a joke. So chapter 1, we see the joy in Christ comes through the basics of thanksgiving and prayer and fellowship, the gospel going forth, witnessing having your mind settled on the things of Christ, having obedience to Christ, but then it's all centered on Christ. That's basically the collection of what we've said for the last three weeks. It's all here in the first chapter. So if you look at the first two verses of chapter 1, even in the salutation, the salutation is Christ-centered from the beginning. Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. He's speaking of the officers in the church, the pastors and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's already saturated with Christ and in Christ. Paul and Timothy are servants of Christ. They write to the saints who are in Christ. And he greets them with the supply of Christ, the grace and peace that only comes from the Father and his Son, Christ Jesus. This will be a simple sermon, by the way. There's not many profound things coming your way. But a simple thing then is that a key to joy and contentment is knowing your identity as a servant of Christ as a saint in Christ, supplied with the grace and peace of Christ. And the theme of being in and of Christ may be the biggest theme of all Philippians. And the only way to true joy and contentment is through a Christ-centered and a Christ-fueled life. He is your life. And you're in him. Then you get to verses 3 through 5. And what we see in verses 3 through 5, he immediately prays, which he is prone to do. But again, prayer is a key aspect of knowing joy and walking through with Christ. So verses 3 and 5, he prays with joy and thanksgiving, which is important, because of their fellowship, and not just fellowship, but their fellowship in the gospel. Do you see how this all fits together? I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. He mentions this thanksgiving. If rightly understood that by Christ's undeserved grace and peace that you are set apart as one of Christ's saints to be his servant, how can you not be humbled and overflow with thanksgiving to God? And then joy comes. And such an attitude of thanksgiving is key to a life of joy and contentment in Christ. And here Paul recalls the love and the support of the Philippians that comes often to him in the past decade. And it leads him to thankfulness. Now, it's thankfulness to God, because He's the giver of these good gifts, but it's also of the saints. He thinks of his first trip to Philippi 10 years prior, and their continued support since. He thinks of their sacrificial giving and support to Thessalonica, to the Corinthians, to the church in Jerusalem. And they even sent a man named Epaphroditus. Somebody needs to name their, their son Epaphroditus. He was a good man. He sent a man named Epaphroditus to Rome with gifts and services to to Paul when they found out that he was there. They lost track of him. So Thanksgiving is there as part of our joy. But he prays. He prays. We keep mentioning prayer is a key to joy. Matthew Henry has said, We would rejoice more if we would pray more. Very simple statement, but we would rejoice more if we would pray more. The flip side of that is if you're not prayerful, Don't expect joy in your life. Christ suffered as a servant to set us apart as saints with a new access to God in prayer. And that in the resulting privilege of communing with Holy God, the Holy God of the universe, is reason for joy in itself. By Christ's atonement, we have access to God as adopted sons and daughters. And so we can come boldly before the throne of grace with joy. An overall key to joy in the Christian life is is an outward-directed life and that's shown by prayers of thanksgiving to God and supplication for the brethren, which kind of increases our fellowship as well. And he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with joy for your fellowship and your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. The word for fellowship is koinonia. It speaks of a shared life in Christ, And it's not merely, and we're good at this, it's not merely having lunch every Sunday or hanging out late at night on Wednesday night after the prayer meeting's over or even meeting for pizza and spicy chicken wings in a brother's house on a Saturday night when maybe you should be home getting ready for Sunday. I don't know. Those are wonderful times, but this fellowship that's speaking about here is participation and partnership in the life and cause of Christ. It's characterized by an activity in and for Christ For the love of Christ and his saints to further the gospel. It's a gospel fellowship. It's a life together, yes, and we should strive to that. That's been something we've wanted to have in our church since the beginning. Living life together in Christ. But it's based on the commonality we have and the life we have in Christ Jesus. It's a bond of fellowship in Christ and him crucified. And it's participating in him him as as his body and proclaiming him to a lost and dying world. Our unity, our humility, and our joy in our fellowship would be greatly enhanced the more we purpose to use our fellowship for the furtherance of the gospel, and Christ is proclaimed. And in verses 6 through 11, we've already covered thanksgiving, prayer, fellowship, the gospel. What about the key things we started off with three weeks ago having a mind settled on the right things and having obedience that flows out of that. Well, I think verses 6 through 11 give you that. What he says in verse 6, what's the basis of his prayer that's joyful? He's confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work and you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He has confidence. His mind is settled on the promises of God through Christ. He's confident in them and that work Dear Philippians, that has begun in you will be carried out to completion. And that leads to obedience as well when you have that settled mind on the promises of God and what he's doing with you. So in verses 9 through 11, one of my favorite prayers of all scripture, he says, In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, having your mind settled on the right things, thinking about the right things. Why? That you may approve the things that are excellent that you may be sincere and without offense. That's your outward life. Blameless before God and man. Till the day of Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. That comes through obedience to Christ. Which are by Jesus Christ. To the glory and praise of God. So I think even in this closing prayer. These first 11 verses. All we've gone through so far. You see a settledness. On the things of God in Christ. You see an In obedience to Christ and seeking him for his praise and glory and so you have the keys to joy all listed in the first 11 verses of this letter to the Philippians and these basic themes and keys of joy are seen throughout the whole rest of the book the rest of chapter one because we have to go quickly the rest of chapter one that has an emphasis on joy found in Christ and his gospel And it rests, and maybe one more thing to add to our bucket list of knowing joy, it's then resting in God's sovereignty. That's a key thing. We've spoken of thanksgiving and prayer and fellowship and witnessing and obedience and a mind settle in Christ. And Christ himself, but maybe one more thing to add is resting in God's sovereignty, knowing who he is and resting in that. And we see that in the rest of this chapter 1. In verses 12 through 18, I'm not going to read every word, by the way. You can, you can rest assured. But in verses 12 through 18, what happens is Paul rejoices because Christ is preaching in new ways and in new places that he didn't imagine before because of his affliction, which he didn't like. He didn't want to be in prison. But he rejoices. Why? Because Christ is preached in this sovereign work of God that has him in affliction. So verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. He's in prison so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Though he's in prison and not knowing if he'll live or die, and he's not able to preach the gospel on the outside, he's content because he rests in God's sovereignty to work for God's glory and for Paul's good. And the gospel's going out on the inside of the Roman prison is what he's saying. They're seeing my chains. And they know it's because of Christ. And you've got to figure that Paul Having someone chained to him that is replaced by another person every so many hours, he's saying, you know, let me tell you about this Christ that had me put here in prison anyway. So he has captive audiences with the palace guarded, And it's interesting, you saw at the very end of the, the book of Philippi, he says, greetings are also sent to you from Caesar's household. It appears like with Paul's witness through a prison that the gospel goes out to even the household of Caesar. And so he rejoices in that. I'm here and this is going on. And then verse 14. And most of the brethren of the Lord have become confident by my chains. And they're much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. In other words, I'm not outside being able to preach boldly. But those brethren now are seeing me in prison and now they're emboldened. Let's let's fill up the slack. Let's preach the gospel because Paul can't do it. Sometimes that's a good thing when somebody doesn't do all the work and other people fill in. So he's seeing that. He's rejoicing because now the gospel is going out on the outside, though it's not from him. And there are those who are preaching on the outside. He actually says some are actually preaching with the wrong motives. Some are preaching out of motives because they don't like him. He says, so what? He says in verse 18, the only thing that matters is that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached and, this I, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. He doubles down. I'm doubly rejoicing because Christ is preached. And he's even being preached because of the difficulty that's going on in my life. Then in verses 19 through 26, we won't read all this, but he says, I don't know whether I'm going to live or die, but one thing I rest assured in because God is sovereign is that Christ will be magnified whether I live or die. If I die, there's going to be a reason for that, and Christ will be magnified. If I live, then I can be living my life for Christ, and Christ will be magnified. So he says in verse 21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what shall I choose, if, he, if, as if he has a choice? For I'm hard-pressed between the two, whether I live or die. Having a desire to depart, to be with Christ, which is far better. If I die, praise God, I'm with him. I have more Christ. But then he says... Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Do you see the love of the brethren? I would rather stay. Even though it would be better for me just to go to be with the Lord, I would rather stay for your benefit. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress in what? In your joy of the faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. He's thinking of their joy. I want to stay behind and suffer so I can bring joy to you. It's a wonderful thing. Joy is contagious. From his joy in Christ, he desires for those he loves to have the same joy through obedient service and fellowship with them. And if we peek ahead to chapter 2... Don't turn to it yet, but if we peek into chapter two, we actually saw last week part of this that Paul says his joy, he wants them to know joy by serving with him with them, but he says, My joy will be increased if you are obedient and you have a mind settled on Christ and we have fellowship together. He says, Fulfill my joy in verse two of chapter two, by being like minded, be unified and humbled and obedient. And my joy will be fulfilled. Then in verses 14 through 18 in chapter 2, he says, after he looks at the obedience of Christ, which we're going to look at very soon, he says, Do all things without complaining. Be blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, as you shine like stars or shine like lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, you're being a witness as you are markedly different from the world. Why? Why? So that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. And for the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. He's not just calling us to be joyful. He says, I'm joyful as well as we serve Christ together. And as I see your life in Christ, it's a contagious thing. It's all wrapped up in fellowship and obedience and being focused on Christ, seeing the gospel go forth. If we'd finish the chapter, the last four verses are wonderful. It's a summary, verses 27 through 30. It's a summary exhortation for their fellowship to be one of standing, striving, and suffering together for the gospel of Christ. And having their minds settled on Christ and their lives lived after him. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In a sense, trust in the God who sovereignly grants you salvation. Also sovereignly grants you suffering for Christ. And there's great joy when you do this. That's chapter 1. That's the keys to joy. It's all the things that we've talked about. Maybe adding sovereignty to the list as well. Then what you get in chapter 2, I want to focus on one thing. And it's verses 5 through 13. And you probably know why. In chapter 2, then, we've seen the the keys or the basics to joy in Christ. But now in chapter 2, we see the centerpiece of joy, which is Christ himself and his work for us and his work in us. Let's just walk through a very familiar passage, but try to look at it fresh and anew this morning. Christ is the centerpiece of our joy through his work for us and in us. In verse 5, verse 5. After he's called the Philippians to be humble and to be unified, then he says, but let this mind, let this example, let this mindset that you need to have to be obedient, humble, and unified, let this mind be in you, which was also in who? Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, that means by nature, he is God. We saw that in John chapter 1 not long ago. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He is God. It's not like he has to say, look, I'm God, everybody, is the point. He has nothing to prove. But he made himself of no reputation. That means he humbles himself. How? By taking the form of a bondservant. He was being in the form of God. That's who he is by nature. And form means the nature. By very nature, he is God. But then he took the form of a bondservant when he took on flesh. And to his deity, he adds his humanity to be the God-man-savior. Fully God and fully man. And form of, of God means the very nature of God. When he took the form of a bondservant, it means he took the very nature of a bondservant as a man. And he came in the likeness of men. In his incarnation. And being found in appearance as a man... He was fully man as he walked upon the earth for for thirty plus years. He humbled himself, and you think about this, the Son of God who humbles himself, though he's God. He now humbles himself to be like those who sin against him, and who are sinners, but he came to save. The creator enters into his creation to save creatures, to be to be like them. He humbled himself and he became obedient. The master and the lawgiver now obeys his own law, both in his active obedience and his passive obedience. As a man in place of sinners, sinners who broke this law. He who knew knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. You've heard this all before, but it should stun you every time you think about it. To the point of death the giver of life, the one who is life itself, he dies. Even the death on the cross, the shameful cross, the depth of his humiliation, which represents his bloodshed propitiating our wrath upon himself in a few short hours, expiating our sins that our sins would be forgiven and then by his righteousness that is given to those who had placed their faith in him, they are justified through the shameful death on the cross in our place that we deserve, that would not have saved one single soul if we were the ones. This should bring us joy if we just stop there. But then you continue. What's missing here is there's a burial, which might be the depth of his humiliation, because now the, the Lord of glory is now in a in a, in a tomb. In a dead body, but then he's raised and he ascends and he takes his rightful place on the throne and he's coming again. So then verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. That's pretty much everyone and everything. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the centerpiece of our joy. Who Christ is, what he has done, what he has accomplished, and then what that work does for us and what that work is in us. Because then in verse 12, Therefore, what's our response, my beloved, as you have always obeyed? And again, Christ is the ultimate example of obedience. So now we're called to obedience and humility as Christ would. Can't do it perfectly well. Conrad did well this morning in talking about that. But, but through Christ and his spirit, Our works can be accepted before God, not for salvation, but they're pleasing to Him and praise God for that, even though they're tainted with sin. As you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Pursue Christ, settle your mind on Christ and obey. But for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. It's His sovereign work in you. Trust in it. Be confident in it. The work He started in you will be completed. It's promised and the good works that flow out of you are because God works in you and continues to do so. This is the center of our joy. And the first chapter means nothing without the second chapter. And if you would, we want to look at the rest of the chapter, of chapter 2, with Christ's work and example. Paul then calls the Philippians to continue in obedient service for Christ and for them to rejoice together and to be glad to serve together. We read that. Paul says, let's rejoice together, we serve Christ. Good deal. And then he gives the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus as wonderful human examples of those who would serve in Christ with gladness. And so again, we see the joy of fellowship, the gospel, service, obedience, even a mind settled in and for and because of Christ in chapter 2. Then we get to chapter 3. Now, if that is the centerpiece, we find in chapter 3 that joy is commanded. Probably makes sense. But it's also characteristic of the Christian, and it's meant to be cultivated. Joy is commanded, it's characteristic of the Christian, and it's supposed to be, it's meant to be cultivated as well. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3. Finally, and that doesn't mean I'm done, but that means, and so, because of what I've just said in chapter 2, I think it harkens back to, it's that centerpiece of Christ as well. Finally, because of this, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. It's speaking of those Judaizers saying you must be circumcised to be saved. You must have outward works to be saved. And he's saying, beware of that. We won't get into that so much. But then he says, for we are the circumcision. Others, we are the true Christians. We are the ones who have been born again by the grace and mercy, sovereignly by God through Christ. We are the circumcision who worship God in spirit and who rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So in verse 1, we're commanded to rejoice. Yes, it seems odd to be commanded to rejoice with Christ's work for you and in you that we just saw. Of course you should rejoice. And so Paul can command you to rejoice. Paul frequently exhorts and commands uh, his listeners to rejoice regardless of the circumstances and Paul's in prison, even in this letter. And he's told the Philippians already that he rejoices that Christ is preached and he longs to rejoice in the day of Christ in his labors for them, he said in chapter 2, verse 16. And he rejoices in their partnership and their labors of service and of faith, he says in chapter 2. So now he encourages them and therefore us to rejoice as well in the light of christ and who he is and what he has done and what he's doing in their lives but verse three is wonderful for we are the circumcision that means we are the ones who are born again circumcision was not of the flesh it was of the heart so a true christian and as one has a circumcised heart a new heart that's what he's speaking of we're not like the judaizers who are presenting a false gospel, we are the circumcision of a circumcised heart who worship God in the spirit. You think of John chapter 4. True worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. You have the spirit of God in you through the circumcision of your heart. That's the heart of Christianity. And then he says, who rejoice in Christ Jesus. And this word for rejoice isn't the same thing as a previous rejoice. And some of your versions may say, who glory in Christ Jesus. Maybe even boast in Christ Jesus. But it's a wonderful word. I think the best way I've seen it explained is it's a joy emphatically triumphant. Is what this rejoicing or glorying in Christ is. It's a joy emphatically triumphant. It's looking at Christ and his conqueringness and who he is. And it's wanting to boast him forth. And to glory in him and make him known it's a joy emphatically triumphant in Christ due to who he is and what he has done. And so what that means is that joy is to be characteristic of the Christian. If you say you're a Christian, there should be some joy in your life. It doesn't mean that you're clicking your heels and dancing up the aisles and being all giddy looking. I mean, if you do that from time to time, it's fun, I suppose. But it's, it's a settled contentment and a joy and a rest in Christ there should be some smiles occasionally. Nobody has any more reason to smile than a Christian does. But joy is characteristic of us when we're born again. Joy is implanted in the Christian by the Spirit of God through the fruit of the Spirit. It's implanted by the Spirit through the fr- fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Joy is implanted in the Christian by Christ. Christ. As the fruit of Christ's love, I think of John chapter 15 when Christ tells his disciples, As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. So abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. My commandment is that you must love one another as I have loved you. Joy is implanted in the Christian by Christ as a fruit of his love, but it's also a result of his prayer. We saw that a couple weeks ago in John 17 when Jesus is praying for the church. He says, but now I come to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Christ prays that this would be the case, that you'd have his joy fulfilled in themselves. Christ knew joy. Christ himself knew joy. We saw that in Psalm 16. He prayed for his joy to be fulfilled in us. We saw that in John 17. He gave us a new heart and a new mind and a new life with the ability and the abundant reasons to rejoice. And therefore, joy is integral. It's an integral part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's implanted by the Spirit. It's implanted by Christ. It's prayed for by Christ. Joy is, and it's integral to the church and the kingdom of God. Since Christians in the church are called to be joyful and it's characteristic of them to be joyful, it follows that Paul can then command us to rejoice. And we are then to cultivate this joy in our lives. And We've seen many practical ways to do that in the book of Philippians, in the previous three sermons. Having a mind settled on the things of Christ, having fellowship with Christ and His people, pursuing obedience to Him, having thankful hearts, being prayerful, witnessing, and resting in his sovereignty, all because of Christ and in Christ. And we'll see all of these things, by the way, when you briefly run through chapter 4. The rest of chapter 3, what you see, I think, in a sense, is that joy is cultivated. You see the idea of cultivating joy and obedience through counting all things lost for Christ and resting in his citizenship Look at chapter 3, verse 7. This is key. Paul says, But what things were gained to me? These I have counted lost for Christ. You want to know joy? Don't value anything in your life more than you value Christ. It's pretty simple. Not your spouse, not your children, not your job, not whatever it is. He says in verse 8, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Rejoice, you have justification through Christ. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. Rejoice, you have promised sanctification in Christ. If by any means I may attain or I may arrive at the resurrection from the dead, Rejoice, you have a promised glorification in Christ when he returns. In the rest of the chapter, Paul says, Therefore, because I count all things lost to Christ, and he's the center of all things, I will press forward to the goal for the prize of the upward call of Jesus Christ and to walk in obedience with him. And he rejoices in his citizenship in heaven, and he eagerly awaits Christ's return when he will be transformed, not just in soul, but in body to be like Christ. So, we have one chapter left. That's chapter four. We've seen the keys to joy thanksgiving, prayer, fellowship, the gospel, having our mindset on Christ, obedience to Christ, Christ himself in the sovereignty of God. In that first chapter, we saw Christ as the centerpiece of all of this. It's necessary. In chapter three, we see we're commanded to have joy. It's characteristic of who we are, but we're to cultivate it by counting all things lost to Christ Jesus. What you have in chapter 4 is back to chapter 1, I think, in a sense. Now we're cultivating joy through those same keys that we've already seen. Paul brings us back to earth. because He just talked about our citizenship in, of heaven in, in uh, chapter 3. Now we're back to earth for a final push and practical instruction of how to be content and how to be joyful. Again, I think there may be no greater place in all of Scripture to see contentment and joy than chapter 4 of Philippians. So verses 1 through 3... This will be quick, so hang on to your hat. Verses 1 through 3, he starts off, he says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. All those descriptions of the brethren, beloved, beloved, longed-for brethren. you got to like this, my joy and my crown. Do we think that about each other? It would be helpful. But we see joy and fellowship. It's focused on his brethren. And in verses 2 and 3, I won't read that, but... Verses 2 and 3, there appears to be two ladies in the church who are bickering. He says, help them out. They are co-labors of me in the gospel. This is where the love flows from and the joy f- flows from. These two women were co-labors with me in the gospel. Help them to work these things out. So again, it's focused on the fellowship and the importance of it. Then in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's a command, and he commands it twice. I tell you again, rejoice, and do it always, continually. It implies having a mindset on that and pursuing obedience to it. It's a command. Joy comes from it, but it's in the Lord. It's not just joy, it's joy in the Lord. Verse 5, he gets back to fellowship. He says, let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is at hand, or it might be the Lord is near. And that word for gentleness is is a unique word. I think it's the only place in the scripture you see it here. It's not just being gentle, it's the idea of graciousness forbearance, I think the best way I heard it described, it's big-heartedness. It's outward big-heartedness. And let it be known to all in the fellowship of the brethren, even elsewhere. So we're speaking about fellowship with the brethren, but then the Lord is at hand. That might mean the Lord is near to you right now, which He is. It might mean the Lord is going to be coming soon. Be ready for it. Either way, it's fellowship with Him. And so we have joy flowing out of fellowship with others in the Lord. Then, with verses 6. In 7, 8, and 9, you have some of the most famous verses on how to pursue a lack of anxiety and an increase of joy. In verses 6 and 7, we have thankful, humble, personal prayer with fellowship in mind, which requires a mind settled on Christ in obedience to Him. In verse 6, he says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and and supplication notice he doesn't say don't worry be happy Does you remember that song it's just as well if you don't but he says don't worry but be prayerful this is his point it's not just a, a manufactured joy just put a smile on your face and be no it's it's don't worry but be prayerful worry distrusts god worry disbelieves god and his goodness and his sovereignty Worry sets the mind and obedience on the wrong things. Prayer, however, trusts God and believes God and rests in God through Christ. Prayer exalts God and humbles oneself and therefore produces joy. It's interesting. We have a double command in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I tell you rejoice. It's really a double command in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. And the flip side is, but in everything Pray. Do you see the double command there? He's he's being pretty blunt. Prayer is often our last resort when it should be our immediate refuge in difficulty. And even these words, prayer and supplication and thanksgiving and requests, these words are wonderful words in the original. The word for prayer means reverence. It's the idea of devotion, reverence, adoration, and worship. So it's a devotional prayer, reverent prayer, The word for supplication has the implication of humble, a humble cry, humility. This word for supplication has the idea of a humble cry of needs that are keenly felt, but they know, the one who's praying knows that only God can fulfill those needs. It's reverence and humility, dependency, if you will. The word for thanksgiving is gratitude. It implies a humility and submission to God's will and thankful for it. Thanksgiving acknowledges past favors from God, the present blessings from God, and acknowledges the, pr- the future promises that are given. And thankful prayer cleanses us from worry because it demonstrates and acknowledges a trust in God, even when things are hard. And thankful prayer garners the mind and the heart back to be stayed on God and the things of God and not your circumstances. So you're reeled into a mind settled into obedience that follows from it. Can you see why prayer is so important in the Christian life and for joy and the idea of let your request be made known to god request it means personal specific petitions it's not just let's have some world peace god amen it's not that at all these are personal specific intimate petitions sometimes we're, we're told don't pray for little things don't even pray for the earthly things no pray for all things it's the god we serve because prayer is fellowship with god And we usually pray for the fellowship with our brethren. And so fellowship is wrapped up with it as well. And so we can see how prayer is central to joy and contentment in Christ. It settles the mind on God in Christ. It's by access that we have by Christ. And it accesses the personal blessings that we can have through Christ. We are to turn to God with our cares that are burdening us. Even those cares that are pulling us apart. And take those cares to God himself by the name and the merits and the compassion of Jesus Christ, specifically, actively, passionately, sincerely, even in tears and sighs, but praying with reverence and humility and gratitude, personally and trustingly. And in verse 7, what happens? Verse 7, And the peace of God, which maybe aligns with joy and contentment, which surpasses all understanding, there's nothing like it, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. So anxiety is cleansed, a heart is resettled on Christ, and obedience flows from it if we would just seek the Lord in prayer and He would work by His grace in our lives. And then verse 8 and 9, set your mind on the things of God and then do it. (laughs) It's Setting your mind settled and then being obedient. Verse 8, finally, brethren, Whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report. If there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Set your mind on these things. And then what? The things which you learned and received and heard and saw me. Do them. Simple obedience. And the God of peace will be with you. You have the peace of God guarding your hearts and mind. Now you have the God of peace himself being with you. And the rest is wonderful. We read it at the beginning, so we wouldn't necessarily have, have to read it at the end. But the rest is wonderful as well. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that I now at last know your care for me. The point is, they'd lost track of each other. They didn't know he was in prison. When they did, they sent Epaphroditus with a bunch of gifts. And it, it made Paul rejoice greatly. I know that you, I knew you cared, but now that you, you didn't have an opportunity, is what he's saying. But now that you did, oh, you're helping me abundantly. And by the way, I've learned to be content, whether I'm abased or I'm abounding, whether I'm full or I'm a hungry, I've learned to be content. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. It's not necessarily to be written on your football helmet to go get the victory in a football game. It's like in the midst of great affliction, you can deal with whatever is happening because of the strength of Christ Jesus who is the greatest possession you have but will never be taken away. And then in verses 14 through 20, He talks even more about that, that he can abound and and, and he can be abased. But he says, I'm full, having received from Epaphroditus the things you sent me, a sweet-smelling aroma and acceptable sacrifice, which is well-pleasing to God, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches. When something says according to his riches, you know what that means? Like if you say, I'm being supplied according to the bank account of Martin Nish, You say, well, that's nice. We know how much he makes because we have that that meeting every year. But there's there's, there's a limit to that. That well has a bottom to it. But when Paul says, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, that's an infinite well of riches that will supply for every need you have and strengthen you for every affliction you may have. It's also there for the greatest joy that can never be stopped because the well can never be stopped. And then he says, which should be our overarching idea, now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. All of it runs to the glory of God. Well, we made it and it didn't take an hour and a half. But in closing, if you're not a Christian, we've spoken a lot for four sermons about joy in Christ. Maybe too much. I hope it's not been beating a dead horse to death. But you must understand there's lots of happy things in life. There's things you can enjoy in life, but there's no real joy outside of Christ. There isn't. You can be fooled to thinking there is, but there is none. There's no real joy outside of repentance of your sin and trusting Christ as the only forgiver of that sin and the only imputer of righteousness. You might... Find temporary happiness, but you'll never find joy. But worse than that, outside of Christ, there's only grief and wrath and eternal torment in the end because you're left in your sin. And your sin is a sin against holy God. And that sin deserves infinite judgment because he's an infinitely holy God. It's because you've rejected the infinite mercy and grace and love of Christ Jesus that is offered for you who humbled himself, though very God he became man, though the lawgiver he became obedient, though the creator of life and even life itself. He suffered death, though he knew no sin, he became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. You've personally offended the holy, omnipotent God by your infinite sin and your rejection of his infinite love. And so I humbly ask that you would ask God to show the darkness of your sin, But the beauty and the answer of Christ, that you might repent of your sin and flee to Christ for forgiveness and for cleansing and for justification. And a sidelight of that is, you might know a settled joy, both now and forever. If you're a Christian, meditate on the humiliation and exaltation of Christ and his work in you and for you of chapter 2. Meditate with Paul on counting all things lost for Christ of chapter 3. Learn to cherish Christ above all things and to count all things lost for him. It shouldn't be that hard to count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, our Lord, who through his humiliation of incarnation and obedience and death on the cross and his exaltation and his resurrection, ascension and reign and his promised return, he has justified you through faith by his righteousness. He is sanctifying you by the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, and he will glorify you at his return with a sinless soul and a transformed body. And Christian, rejoice. And again I say rejoice and cultivate through these basic and practical instructions and exhortations the joy that Christ has commanded you to have, but the joy that he has won for you, that he's implanted in you, that he's prayed for you, as a characteristic of him and of his people and for his glory, for your good, and for our witness to a lost and dying world. Let us pray. I we thank you for the patience of of our attenders, Lord, for a long and information-filled sermon. I pray, Lord, that by your spirit you would take your word, you'd take the the culmination of all of this of this book and the the four sermons in particular that we would be a people who biblically and rightly are a people of joy how can we not be Lord teach us the darkness of our sin and teach us then the beauty of Christ the grace the sovereign grace and mercy and love that comes through Christ from you O father if we recognize this and meditate on these things, how can we not pursue you, pursue a life of loving Christ above all things, a life of prayer, a life of thanksgiving, fellowshipping with you, O God, and fellowshipping with your people to make the gospel known and resting in your sovereignty as we do it with our mind and our lives settled upon you. Bring us great joy in our congregation and make it be contagious. And even contagious in the sense that then sinners would see us and see a supernatural joy, not a fake joy, a supernatural joy that flows from these things. And they would say, look at my sin, look at my sin, and look at their Savior. Lord, you'd use this us as a means, Lord, for the gospel to go forth and for salvation to come. We pray for those in our midst who are outside of Christ that today would be this day of salvation for them. Lord, don't allow them to tarry. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen.